Hello, and welcome to the Notable Speeches podcast, back now from summer vacation. Today is speech about issues that have come to the fore during the 2020 summer of our discontent, but issues that have been around for quite some time, of course, namely societal attitudes toward race and ethnicity. Today, there is a quick willingness to characterize many people and institutions as irredeemably racist and to condemn what is commonly called white privilege. The speaker on today's podcast is theologian and Christian apologist Vodi Baucom. Mr. Baucom's books include The Ever-Loving Truth, Can Faith Thrive in a Post-Christian Culture, from 2004, and Expository Apologetics, published in 2015. Vody Bauckham is a native of Los Angeles, but today lives about 10,000 miles from there. He serves as the Dean of Theology at African Christian University in Zambia. This address was recorded January 4, 2019, at a conference in the U.S. hosted by the organization Founders Ministries. Mr. Bauckham's presentation, titled Ethnic Gnosticism, ran nearly an hour. We've abridged it for this podcast. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word for gnosis or knowledge. The, the Gnostic heresy was one that was around in the first century. Gnosticism is about a special knowledge. It's about immediate knowledge. And when I say immediate knowledge, I don't mean right now knowledge. I mean knowledge that doesn't have to be mediated through a source. Knowledge that doesn't have to be mediated through the Word of God. Intuitive knowledge a knowledge that separates insiders from outsiders. That is the idea of Gnosticism. And I use that phrase, ethnic Gnosticism, to sort of explain the phenomenon of people believing that somehow because of one's ethnicity, that one is able to know when something is racist. And the idea is that you know, if I go to a restaurant and I sit down at the restaurant and somebody looks at me a certain way, or if I'm shopping in a store and the clerk looks at me a certain way, or if I'm pulled over by a police officer and the police officer addresses me in a certain way, I know when it's racism. And if you do or say something to me and I know that it's racism, and then you come back and say, well, no, that's not what I meant. That's just your privilege speaking. Because according to the concept of white privilege, you don't know what you don't know. But I do. That's ethnic Gnosticism. Th this idea that somehow because of my ethnicity, because of my position as a minority, I know what oppression is and feels like and don't have to necessarily have evidence for it. And because of other people's position of not being minorities and not being oppressed, they actually oppress people without thinking about it and without knowing it. They have privilege that they're not even aware of. And literally the phrase is, you don't know what you don't know. So you have to be taught how racist you are, but nobody has to teach me when you're racist. 
That's ethnic Gnosticism. And it's a problematic idea. It, it is rooted, I would argue, in cultural Marxism that reduces everything to race, class, sex, and gender, that divides people up, not like classical Marxism that divides people up into the bourgeois and the proletariat between the haves and the have-nots, between those who control means of production and those who don't control means of production. But in cultural Marxism, you divide the world between those who establish and benefit from the cultural hegemony and everyone else who is oppressed by it because for one reason or another, they are not part of that dominant group. This idea is rooted in that. And it's not just a, a black-white thing. If I am a homosexual person, I know when you are judging and oppressing me for that. If I am a woman, I know when you are oppressing or judging me for the fact that I am a woman because being in these particular groups and going through life and experiencing these things over and over and over again puts one in a situation where you just know. And being in a dominant group where you don't have to worry about such things puts you in a setting and situation where you literally don't know what you don't know. You are a racist, bigot, homophobic, transphobic, everything else phobic person, whether you're aware of it or not. Also, this idea is rooted in cultural Marxism because it's based on the concept that my identity is determined by the group to which I belong. That is the major essence of my identity, my group. It could be my ethnicity. It could be my gender. It could be my so-called sexual orientation. It, it could be any of these things, but that is the essence of who I am. And finally, my identity is understood in the context of our struggle. This idea of our shared cultural experience and identity. Now, as I say this, let me hurry to acknowledge a couple of things. That ethnicity is not a bad thing. Culture, not a bad thing. Nationality, not a bad thing. These are good and natural connections. Ethnic and national identity is both good and important. And I need to hurry to say this because some of my dearest friends and brothers would want to argue for being colorblind. And I say, that dog won't hunt. For us to say that we want to be colorblind is for us to say, I don't care about the variety of color of roses there are. As far as I'm concerned, God just made a rose. Why did he bother to make them all those different colors? If he did, praise him for it. And I know, I know what we're trying to say when we say that. I know what we're, what we're trying to get at when we talk about being colorblind. But if I'm going to say, on the one hand, let's be careful about using the terminology of social justice, 
then I have to also be even-handed and on the other hand say, let's be careful about using terminologies like being colorblind because that's not right. It's not possible, number one, and it's not right. But what we're trying to say is something different, something good and something important, but let's say that. We'll get to that. What is so good about it? Ethnic and national identity is a conduit for culture and tradition. And that's important. That's good. How many times, you know, when we we leave and we go on vacation, if you leave and you go on vacation and travel to another country, you come back with pictures. Usually it's not pictures of the things that are exactly like the culture and tradition at home. Usually you want to show people the beauty of the culture and tradition that you saw over there that is not like your own. And that's a good thing. This whole colorblind idea runs us away from that. Ethnic and national identity teaches us dependence and humility. How so? No single group possesses all the good. I belong to a group that has strengths, and I belong to a group that has weaknesses. I look at other groups of people who are strong where I may be weak, and who may be weak where I'm strong. And I learn dependency and humility by learning that. No single group possesses all knowledge. Praise God for that. You know one of the great things about America? In most countries in the world, People are of the same ethnicity and the same background and the same culture. They, they look alike. When you see the Olympics, you know, the people from this country, they look like that. The people from that country, they look like that. That's most of the world. And then here's America. We got people who look like everybody else's country. And one of the greatnesses of America is how highest and best from cultures all around the world come together to make a higher and better. That's good. I don't want to live in a world where we ignore that. It's not right to live in a world where we ignore that. That's good. Ethnic and national identity teaches providence. Every culture, every nationality, every ethnicity has a history that they can trace. My ethnicity teaches me about providence. Knowing who I come from, how we got here, and how by God's grace we survived, that teaches me about the providence of God. I've been living and serving in Africa for the last three and a half years. And I've been reminded almost every day, it's amazing that my ancestors were torn away from that continent and experienced the horrors of slavery. And now I was born in the greatest nation that has ever existed in the history of the world. And the healthiest, wealthiest, most educated, most prosperous black people on planet Earth are in America. Where else on this planet do black people want to go and live that's better than this? What is that? That's providence, people. 
providence. Would anyone have chosen that path? Absolutely not. But you look back on it and see providence. If you ignore culture and ethnicity, you don't see providence. You learn about the consequences of sin, about the multi-generational consequences of sin. And by the way, let me just put a pin here and say this, because I think this is a lesson that we need to learn. And if we're not careful, again, we talk about the tribalism and the way that we're addressing all of these issues, but please don't miss this. One of the reasons that we are going through what we're going through right now is because to, to quote Malcolm X, yeah, I'm about to quote Malcolm X here at church. America's chickens have come home to roost. There is great sin in our history. Atrocities that have been committed against people in this country. And you don't get to do that and not have consequences later on down the line. Let's not miss that when we talk about this. Let's not let the only thing that we do when we talk to our children about this is say, yeah, yeah, these people are using, you know, this language and they're talking about these issues and they're making this everything. And that, you know, you, yeah, that may be true, but it's also true that what we're dealing with today is the fruit of horrible sins and atrocities. And you don't have to be a social justice warrior to acknowledge that. But ethnic and national identity is not everything. It's important, but it's not everything. So how do we handle this? How do we balance this? I think we have an example. Look with me in Romans chapter 9. And let's look briefly here and talk about a, a better way. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, beginning verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I love my people. That's what Paul's saying here. My kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul is not saying, I'm colorblind. Ethnicity means nothing to me. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, and I don't even think about those people anymore. That's wrong. He speaks in the most passionate terms imaginable about the group to which he, by God's grace and by God's providence, belongs. It matters. It's important. And here's the, here's the great irony. The great irony is there are people who don't understand this when they see it in certain minority groups. But then when you ask them about their family, they can tell you what percentage Scottish and what percentage Irish and, you know, what boat their ancestors came over on and all of these wonderful things, right? Hold on to that. 
But don't hold on to that and then tell me to forget my ethnicity. Ethnic Gnosticism is broken and sinful. And I'm here to speak against it. But I don't want you to get confused and think that somehow I'm arguing that one's ethnicity is unimportant. Paul makes this painfully clear. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You don't get more passionate than that. And then look at what he says. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. I mean, and so not, he's, he's, he's specific, not only this group of individuals, but what, what is he so passionate about with this group of individuals? And he looks at providence. The providence. He's not saying merely our skin color, merely our geographic location, merely our, oh, more than that. But then there are limits to this connection. And I love the fact that it's not an either or. Look with me beginning of verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Our connection to Christ is more important. There's a ditch on both sides of the road, folks. There's a ditch on the side of the road that tries to act colorblind and act like ethnicity doesn't matter and act like ethnicity is unimportant. And there's a ditch on the other side of the road that says it's everything. And that we start there and not with the cross. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. And this is the huge problem with ethnic Gnosticism, or at least one of them. So what, what is the danger? What does this do? Number one, I think it compromises genuine relationships. I alluded to this earlier. The fact that there has been a, a false unity that has been exposed through these controversies. And people who were brothers from another mother and now this comes up, and if you say the wrong thing or come down on the wrong side of a particular issue, all of a sudden you are anathema. That's not genuine relationships. And listen, even down on that micro level, if I assume that I can read your heart and you have to assume you don't know what you don't know, we've created a relationship that is imbalanced that hinders our intimacy. I mean, think about that. Who, who wants to have a relationship with someone where you, to the, to the best of your ability, are, are loving this person? But if the wrong thing slides out of your mouth at the wrong time, that you, in all sincerity, meant to be a blessing, and they determine 
that regardless of what you think about it, this is what it actually was, and it is an affront to me and a sin against God himself. What kind of relationship is that? And I'm seeing it all over the place. This, this hinders genuine relationships. When we can't be honest with each other, where we are not free to err, that's not a genuine relationship. And ethnic Gnosticism is destroying genuine relationships. Secondly, this idea of guilt and innocence being inherited. This idea that because of who your parents were, you've inherited guilt or you've inherited innocence. That white people can't not be racist and black people can't be racist. Yeah. Because, you know, the modern definition of racism, prejudice plus power. What's the power? The power is the cultural hegemony. If you are not part of the cultural hegemony, then you technically can't be a racist. How about that? So a predominantly white church that doesn't have black members is in sin, but a predominantly black church that doesn't have white members is, it just is. One of those groups needs to repent and sackcloth and ashes, and the other, there's nothing wrong. John McWhorter calls this the religion of racialism. Listen to this. An article that he wrote entitled uh, Atonement as Activism. Listen to what he says. This brand of self-flagellation has become the new form of enlightenment on race issues. It qualifies as a kind of worship. The parallels with Christianity are almost uncannily rich. White privilege is the secular white person's original sin. Present at birth and ultimately ineradicable. One does one's penance by endlessly attesting to this privilege in hope of some kind of forgiveness. This new cult of atonement is less about black people than white people. That's the great irony. 50 years ago, a white person learning about the race problem came away asking, how can I help? Today, the same person too often comes away asking, how can I show that I'm a moral person? Another problem is that I'm not sure that today's educated whites quite understand how unattainable the absolution they are seeking is. You'll never be sorry enough. We have gone from most whites being unaware that racism was a problem for black people at all to whites being chilled to their bones at the possibility of harboring racism in their souls, terrified at the prospect of being singled out as a heretic and forgetting that the indulgences they purchase and the praying they do for their souls has more to do with them than with anyone black. Irony of ironies. We're being driven further apart by this. This idea that you don't know what you don't know 
and, and don't tell me because I know. Don't try to explain yourself because I know. I talked about it earlier. People who have been for decades serving their communities, loving their brothers and sisters, who all of a sudden run into the religion of racialism. And it's like, I, I, don't, I don't care about that. I don't care that you have been marching at <laughs> abortion clinics for two decades because of the slaughter of black babies. I want to know how sorry you are about the latest issue. And it's never enough. Those aren't genuine relationships. That will never lead to genuine relationships. Because in genuine relationship, I have to be free. I have to free to, I, I've got to be free to be wrong and have you love me and, and correct me and not just dismiss my whole person. I mean, because essentially what's happening in many circles is that there are people who, regardless of what it is that they've done, regardless of who it is that they've been, if they slip up on one of these issues, you quote the wrong person. You come down on the wrong side of an issue and all of a sudden the rest of your life doesn't matter. You just proved that all of that was a lie because you are a racist and racism is the new unpardonable sin. And those who are presumed guilty of that unpardonable sin must be dismissed, must be castigated, must be torn down, must be done away with. Now you put these two things together. That is the unpardonable sin that undoes everything else that you've done. And by the way, in order to be declared guilty of it, somebody just needs to feel like that's what you meant. There are great ills, great sins, great problems great wrongs that need to be rectified. All that's true. But God has given us a way to deal with those things, to rectify those things. Let us trust the Word of God, not our feelings, not our inclinations, not our own personal assumptions or assertions, but the Word of God. Let us do what the book says, and I'll leave you with this. If I speak with tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. 
if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what my book says. Not if you happen to say something that offends me, I now have the right to not be bound by this. So let us speak to the great ills and evils and sins of our day. Let us proclaim and trust in the gospel of Christ above all else. And let us never, ever forget that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that we are all in desperate need of His grace and that none of us is exempt. Author and theologian Vody Balkum speaking in January 2019 in Cape Coral, Florida. As always, we welcome your comments and suggestions about the Notable Speeches podcast. Email feedback at notablespeeches.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Parlay at Notable Speeches. I'm Joseph Slife. Thank you for listening.